Hello and welcome to the latest episode of the International Literature Festival Dublin podcast. For this week's episode, we're revisiting an event from 2017 featuring Yo Nesbo in conversation with Hugh Linehan. A reminder that the festival will return in 2018 from May 19th to May 27th. Details coming soon to ilfdublin.com. Hello, everybody. Hello, Joe. Hello. You can draw a crowd, I see. Sorry? You can draw a crowd. Oh, ah, yeah, yeah, crowd. yeah. It seems, uh, uh, seems that way, yeah. You're very nice, welcome. Ni- nice place. Is, uh, is it the library or...? It's a, it's a concert hall and a library. It's part okay, of the, yeah. the Royal, Royal Dublin Society. I, I, I more or less grew up in the library, so this feels at home. Yeah. I might come to your growing up a, li- a, little, bit, a little bit later, but we are here to discuss uh, The Thirst, which I finished reading only about, I think, about four days ago. Yeah. I sort of put it down and went, oh, my God. Um, these uh, Harry Hula thrillers really take it out of you. Um, Maybe for the benefit of our audience who presumably haven't read the book yet, the thirst for what? Um, well, um, the thirst for, uh, first the thirst for blood. Um, I, was, I was doing uh, research for, for a standalone book uh, and I was, uh, I was sort of down in the dark cellar of of psychiatry, and uh, when I came across something I had never heard about before, which is something called uh, clinical vampirism uh, or uh, Renfield syndrome, uh, which is the urge to drink blood. Um, so obviously, it's, it's, it's about the thirst for uh, for blood, and, and and the reason why I was so fascinated with with this was not only that many of the serial killers in, in crime history has been labeled as uh, clinical vampirists, but uh, that it was this mix of uh, real science, I mean, clinical, it's a very scientific word, and the other word, uh, vampirism, which uh, plays on legends and, and myths. And of course, my, my field of work uh, operates in, in, in that territory where fiction meets reality. So um, I, uh, I did some more research on it, and uh, I actually found out that the first article that was written about this, um, uh, and that called it Renfield Syndrome, was not that seriously meant. It, um, I- even the name there, Renfield. Uh, and, uh, well, well, here's a quiz for you. Do you, do you know who Renfield is? Yeah, it's a, it's a servant of, of Dracula. This is Dublin, the home, the, the birthplace of the writer of, course, of Dracula. Of course, and then you okay, then you probably know also in a, uh, in a Coppola's uh, movie, uh, Bram Stoker's uh, Dracula, who who played Renfield. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, you know everything. I, I have nothing new to tell you about this, so uh, we'll move on. Uh, but uh, anyway, I I'm, I'm realized that okay, I I, I dropped the, the, uh, the uh, original idea I had for, uh, for a book because I knew that this is a case for, um, for Harry Hole. Because vampirism, um, is there a scientific basis? I mean, you, you said it's not very serious. I mean, it's... the vampire has a place in the modern imagination, mm-hmm. thanks to Bram Stoker and other 
great artists who kind of in, inhabited that idea. So it's a very, it's a very, I'm not sure if attractive is the right idea, but it's a very compelling idea. Mm. Uh, uh, well, first of all, it's, it's, it's a controversial diagnosis. And uh, as in the, in the book, uh, the uh, psychiatrists, they, uh, they can't really agree on whether this is a uh, serious di diagnosis or not. Uh, but, but for me, it was not so much about real psychiatry as the idea of somebody drinking somebody's blood and feeling the need to drink somebody's blood. And uh, then you move into the more interesting idea of literature. What is it about? Is it about the, you know, the intimacy of getting so close to somebody that you drink their body fluids? Is it like in the old uh, uh, tribe tradition that you want to take the power of um, of the person's blood you drink, uh, and 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 when it becomes like a metaphor for the human condition, so to speak, then it's uh, then it gets uh, then you know you have an idea for for what can be a novel, uh, which is uh, uh, the case with the the thirst. Uh, and since you asked about the title, it's also about the main character who has sort of become the focus of the series, um, Harry Hole, and his thirst, which is for um, uh, alcohol, uh, but also the thirst for doing what you felt you come to do, which in his case is um, solving murder cases. And that's a subject which recurs in the book without giving too much away the idea that somebody has a calling yeah. recurs, recurs with more than one character in the book. Mm -hmm. So that there's almost a gray area between, uh, I'm not sure if that's okay, there's almost a gray area between a calling and an addiction. Yeah. Maybe they're the same thing. Yeah, could, uh, could be, and, and of course that, that is one of the main themes of the book. You know, are you, why are people willing to do the jobs that they do. I mean, it's uh, in in Harry Hall's case, he's a murder investigator. He's really he hates his job. I mean, he, he has uh, at the start of the book, he has just uh, quit his job to work as a teacher at the police academy, and there's no way he will go back to that job. Uh, but there is still this killer, uh, the one that got away, of course, that uh, haunts him, and. Uh, um, I think that we are, uh, we sometimes underestimate uh, the, the power of being a member of a herd, how that influences us. I mean, the social reflex of uh, trying to contribute to that universe, uh, to that society, even if you're an I feel like an outsider. I mean, in Harry's case, he's, he's definitely an, an outsider. But still, he is willing to sacrifice his uh, private happiness because at the start of the book, maybe for the first time in Harry's life, he's actually content. He's, he's waking up every morning, looking at the woman he loves, and he has a job that he loves, and he's, he's happy. And and to Harry, to Harry, that is a bit disturbing because he, he's not very good at being happy. Um, he has uh, very little experience with being happy. So to him, it's, uh, it feels like you know, walking on a thin, 
layer of ice, and you can already hear the ice cracking. And uh, I don't think it's a spoiler to say that, yes, the ice is going to break. Uh, but uh, still, so why do you why do you give up, you know, um, uh, a family that you love to do a job that you hate? Why? Uh, I think it is because it's uh, it feels like a calling if you know that you have a talent that can uh, contribute to uh, to society. I think that you know if you if you look back uh, at the at the uh, astronauts. You know, in the in the, in the 60s, who were asked to go to the moon, which at the time probably would seem like a uh, suicide mission, you know, and 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 these were young men with who had married and had kids. I don't think any of them said no. It's that is too dangerous. I won't go. Uh, I think that just being asked meant that you know we rely on you, the nation, the society, rely that you are one of the few chosen ones who actually have the ability to, uh, to land and walk on the moon. And I think just, just knowing that, uh, you are willing to do those things. I mean, soldiers have for centuries been willing to, to die for, you know, country and, and, and king, fighting against another country, which, uh, you know, more or less on the same moral standards that you have a perhaps just a different con uh, country and a different king so um, so I think it's uh, it's uh, for me it's interesting to 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 both look at Harry as an individual and see what choices he will make as an individual um, given moral dilemmas but also Harry hold this outsider as a member of society as a man who, whether he wants or not, have this urge to to contribute to um, uh, to society. Now, famously, quite a few years ago now, you got on a plane to Australia, and you got off the plane in Sydney. Yeah. And you started writing a book, and that's where you met Harry Hola. Mm -hmm. Is that right? Yeah. How much of you is in Harry Hola, or how much of Harry Hola is in you? Um, 73 percent. Huh, great. Yeah, yeah. That's exactly the answer I yeah. wanted. Um, I think it's, um, I think, although I, I never planned to, uh, to uh, have Harry being my alter ego, and, and he's not, but uh, I think it's inevitable when you, when you write about a protagonist for, um, for so many years, you will uh, use yourself in in that character, and uh, even though you, I, I, I think they say that every writer writes about himself or herself, and I, I, and I guess that's true, um, although we don't plan to. And and for me, I, I discovered it when I started traveling abroad, when my books started getting translated, um, and I would be interested about a book that I wrote five years ago. That was when I realized that, you know what I wrote about five years ago was exactly what was going on in my own life at that time. Um, so I guess it, it just happens. And, and then again, you know, if you know you are going to write about a guy for, for, for many books, it, it is convenient to have him have your own taste in popular culture, in music and movies, uh, maybe share your political view and uh, your sense of humor. Um, and maybe a little bit of your personality also.
because I think I'm right in saying that <clears throat> your first intention was or you'd been asked to write a book while you were you were still in a band. Yeah. You were still a very well you're still are a very well known musical performer. Um and that was what you were initially intending to write about, and then you took this leap into crime fiction instead? No, well, what happened was it, uh, it was a girl who worked at the, at the publishing house, and uh, who I knew quite well. We had studied together in, in, in Bergen. And so she approached me and said, uh, based on the lyrics I'd written for the band, she said that, uh, uh, why don't you write a book about, about the band uh, and about being on the road? And I told her that that's out of the question because you know what what happens on the road stays on the road. So, <laughs> and uh, but I said I I may write something else for you. So it was kind of I had probably been thinking about writing a novel for uh, for years, but this was like an uh, opp opportunity or, or or you know it I. I, I, I like had someone to, to deliver a novel to. So I uh, was going to Australia anyway. And uh, so I brought a laptop and I uh, uh, invented Harry Hall and, uh, and the plot on the plane between Oslo and Sydney, which takes 33 hours. I checked into a hotel in Sydney. It was in the middle of the night and I was jet lagged. And so I simply, I simply started writing about this guy called Harry Hall, um, who had just landed in uh, Sydney and had checked into the same hotel where I was staying. And so I followed Harry around in Australia, maybe he followed me, and uh, after five weeks I, I went home and then I had first version of a, of a crime novel. Now, when I take a long distance flight and arrive somewhere jet lagged and collapse in a hotel, I don't turn around and write a novel. <laughs> that says to me that there's something, when I look at your life story and the various things you've done, you seem, and maybe this again is a little bit like Harry, you're quite driven. Yeah, I, I, I guess I am, yeah. Yeah, and, and that um, uh, when I was in Australia, I, was, I, I went with a friend who had lived for three years in uh, Australia, but he had to go back after two weeks to, uh, to his job. And uh, it was, it, it, uh, and I started writing a little bit while uh, while he was still around, and I was. He he got a bit annoyed, but because I said, uh, "Don't you want to see Australia? You are in the room writing all the time. You know, uh, what a what a uh, co you know companion for a for a travel." And I was actually a bit relieved when he when he went home because then I could write all the time. And then I would, I would write like, uh, and I don't think, think I'm exaggerating, I've said I, I worked for around 14 hours every day. And, or worked, I, I was writing, I was doing what I wanted to do. So I, I holed up in a, in a small hotel room in the red light district in, the, in Sydney, where I had, of course, Harry staying also. Where it's exactly set in the yeah. Hours. And um, and I would, whenever I got so hungry, I had to eat. I would literally run from the from the room into a restaurant, get something to uh, to eat, and run back to my hotel room. Uh, so uh, uh, I, I I don't do that. I don't still do that. But uh, but yes, I I think it's worth to say I'm I'm a bit driven. Do you do you think? Um, 
because uh, the, the battle was the first of, of your books that I read, but I'm aware that for a lot of people it was some of the later ones in the cycle that they came to first. But I wonder if you had to, or it was a good idea to go to the other side of the world to write your first work of fiction. Is that a coincidence that you did that? Um, yeah, I wasn't like, I wasn't planning to write a novel that was going to get published. Okay. I was, I just wanted to write a test piece. Um, so, and I wanted to write something I could do in five weeks. And I'd see my, uh, my friends when I grew up, we, uh, we used to go to this uh, cafe when I was in high school. Uh, we used to, you know, skip math classes and, uh, and uh, physics. And, and uh, we used to buy these long coats in, uh, at, the, at the Salvation Army outlet and uh, go to this cafe and, uh, uh, you know, s suck in our cheeks and, and try to look hungry and talk about uh, books we had never read by Dostoevsky and Homsen and, uh, <laughs> and James Joyce, of course. Uh, and, uh, and my friends, they, 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 at a young age, they would start, you know, writing the big European novel, mm -hmm. which they, of course, never, uh, never were able to, to, to finish. They, <laughs> they all had writer's block at the age of 19. And, uh, and uh, so, so my le the lesson I had learned from that was, it was two things. Never talk about the novel you're writing, uh, especially if it's your first novel. Uh, and the second is, uh, don't try to, to use all the best material you have. Try to just come up with a simple story and see if you can, if you can write that story um, uh, using the tool of literature. Um, and uh, that's what I tried to do. I, I knew the head and tail of a crime story. I figured that would be, you know, quite simple. And uh, so uh, my, uh, my aim was to send it to a publishing house and hopefully get some positive feedback. And then I would sit down and write a real novel, not a crime novel. Ah, yeah. interesting. Mm. Because I, I saw you quoted as uh, describing crime fiction as being like punk rock. And is, is that, I'm trying to understand what that means, is that like in punk rock people said, learn three chords, then get up on a stage and do it straight away. Is that what you meant or is it something else? Um, what I meant was that, uh, that you have this um, in a, um, I mean, uh, when punk rock came, uh, you had an audience that would sort of be part of the performance of the band. They would be standing so close to the stage and they would look at the band that went any better at playing the instruments than the audience themselves. So it, it, it was a sort of a democracy <laughs> to the extent that often the audience would get on stage, you know, try to get the guitar and to play the guitar and, 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 and they would break, break out fights. So it was sort of a reaction to the to a, uh, process where the, the, the rock stars uh, got more and more re removed from the audience. Mm -hmm. um, and uh, the crime novel is a, uh, is a genre where very often the reader is as experienced and know as much uh, about the genre as the writer. And of course there is a uh, certain, uh, uh, a certain game that you, you are allowed to play with the reader. Uh, there's a dialogue with the reader, meaning I'm allowed to try to manipulate you, you know the genre, 
and you know the rules, you know what I'm allowed to do. What I will do is to try to make you watch my left hand while I do the trick with the right hand. And if I trick you, you'll be delighted. So, so you have the sort of the same uh, interaction that you have uh, that you had in the early punk rock that you uh, that you have, I think, in the in the, in, the, in the crime novel. And that is probably what I realized uh, when I wrote that first novel, and that in intrigued me and and made me stick with the with the with the crime books. So you were ever going to write that book that you were going to write as your second novel? Well, I. Um, I've written other stuff uh, also. I've, I've written short stories and uh, children's books and uh, novels that, uh, well, uh, maybe isn't crime novels, but uh, uh, something else. I want to ask you about Oslo, because <clears throat> most of what I know about Oslo, I know from your books. And I've got to say, I don't want to go to Oslo. <laughs> uh, yeah. It's uh, riddled with serial killers, corrupt cops, there's blood everywhere, strange drugs that they're killing people left, right, and center. Uh, it really sounds terrible. Mm. Yeah, yeah, it is. <laughs> it's, uh, don't go. <laughs> uh, no, but I, uh, uh, I, use, I use Oslo as a, as a backdrop for my, for my stories. And it's, uh, I'd say, you know, 90% of the descriptions uh, are the real Oslo, but it is just a little bit twisted. It's a bit darker. It's sort of a Gotham City version of uh, Oslo, sort of Disneyland after dark. Uh, because Oslo used to be, you know, this innocent village in the outskirts of uh, of Europe, but uh, well, in, in the 70s, the drug scene was quite ugly in the, in Oslo, and Oslo actually had. And not many people know this, but they had uh, the highest rate of deaths from overdoses of uh, heroin, only compared to cities like you know, Amsterdam and, and, and a few other European cities. So for some reason, the hard drugs was introduced in Oslo in the uh, 70s. And Is that because of a port and the maritime thing? Was it coming uh, the no, port? It's, it's, uh, nobody really knows. Uh, yeah. It uh, could be you know, just uh, that the routes for, for heroin that it was convenient to transport it through uh, Turkey, Germany, and uh, up to Norway. Could be that uh, uh, because of a uh, relatively uh, high income of Norwegians, they were willing to pay more for the, for the heroin. Uh, but it was uh, hushes and, and heroin. The, the, the drugs in between never really caught on in, uh, in uh, Norway. Even cocaine, for example, during the 80s, when cocaine was, was introduced and was really big in the United States and were coming to, uh, uh, to Europe, uh, it never really caught on in, uh, in, in Norway. Why is that? Do you think, um, some people think that different drugs have a cultural affinity with different times yeah. and different places. And do you think there's something <coughs> perhaps about heroin that, you know, that, 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 that appealed to people in Oslo at that time? Could be, um, I don't really know, but it's, uh, uh, I can speculate. And uh, it is, of course, uh, we, we talked about it a little bit backstage, that there is a certain there are certain similarities between uh, Norway and, uh, and Ireland. Um, was a uh, there was a guy who uh, actually Karl uh, uh, Knausgaard, the Norwegian mm. writer. Mm. He he said that, and, he, and he's been living in Sweden, and he said that 
um, and he's been traveling in Britain and said that the Swedes are the English of, uh, of uh, Scandinavia and the Norwegians are the, the Irish of, uh, of, of Scandinavia. And I, I, and I guess that, to a certain extent, that is true. And uh, when it comes to drinking, uh, Norwegians are either sober or really drunk. Hmm. Uh, so it could be something there that, you know, they either they don't do drugs or they do really hard drugs. Let me ask you about a thing. You may not be aware of this, but in Ireland, when there are political debates about what's wrong with Ireland and how could Ireland be better and how could we run things better, very often people, especially on the left politically, will say Scandinavia, the Nordic countries, the social democratic model in Sweden and in Norway, that's what we should be doing. This is what we're doing wrong. And then I go back to your books and I look at Oslo and I say, it doesn't seem to be working so well there. <laughs> and, uh, and I know it's a, it's a fantasy version of Oslo, but mm. I, I wonder, and I don't know how you feel about the whole categorization of Nordic noir and those kinds of things, but I wonder, is there a relationship between this on the outside, slightly perfect society, and on the, uh, that it allows you to write this fiction, which is about all the terrible things that are happening underneath? Um. Uh, I think that m maybe, uh, you know, s sometimes people will ask me, you know, um, is, isn't it hard to, to write crime novels in a peaceful city like, like Oslo? Uh, but I think actually it's the other way around, that uh, people all over the world, they understand the context. They understand the context of a peaceful city, uh, which means that if a murder is committed there, it's more a shock to the system yeah. than if you have the same murder happening in Mexico City or uh, the Bronx or, uh, or uh, St. Louis. Uh, it's, it's, uh, it's, it's that innocence that is kind of uh, works to uh, uh, our advantage as, as writers. I, uh, I think that you have that uh, backdrop. And uh, it's... Uh, but on the other hand, it's, I see the tradition of the Scandinavian crime is to, is to use the crime novel as a genre, as a vehicle for telling stories, other stories. Mm. And uh, uh, because you can go to a book and you see on the cover that it's a crime novel, you know, you, you probably have an idea what is going to, to happen. There will be a murder at the start. And there you will have the process of someone trying to solve that murder. And at the end, you will probably get the solution. And it's, it's nothing new there. But you can actually use that formula, that vehicle, over and over again to, um, to take the readers to certain places and to write about the human condition and to write about moral dilemmas, for example. I think that what's interesting about the crime novel is that what happened in the 70s and the 80s in Scandinavia was that um, the, political, um, uh, the politically engaged writers would use the crime novel, especially on the, on, on, on the left side politically. Uh, but they would also take the crime novel from the kiosks uh, into the serious bookstores, which meant that suddenly there was a lot of talented young writers who, who took crime fiction and writing crime novels seriously, and they were taken seriously by the readers also. So it became al almost like a thing that you would do, even as a, a writer of, of, of uh, general literature, you would 
sooner or later have sort of a go at the, at the crime novel. And the crime novel became, uh, sort of took over maybe from the, you know, religious literature where you were concerned with morality and where you would have thoughts on wrong and right. And while the rest of the literature would become more and more focused on the individuals and not on society and, and moral questions. Um, it, uh, it was the crime, uh, you know, pulp fiction, you know, the, the stories about murders, the entertainment industry of crime fiction took over sort of the, the, the field that had um, been covered by religious well, literature. Well, is that a reaction to, some people say that literary fiction is in crisis, that the things that it used to do for various reasons, it can't do anymore, uh, that it's run out of energy, maybe. Mm. And is that, is that perhaps a reaction to something like that? That there's a kind of a, uh, we could use the blood metaphor, there's an infusion of the energy of popular culture into literature through crime and genre fiction. I think that I think that you know if if, if you look at in a, uh, uh, over more than five years, people tend to do analysis and conclude based on what they know from the last five years. Mm. Um, I think that if if you look back 50 years and you look forward 50 years, uh, literature and, and novels, the novel. Uh, is is not in any kind of uh, of, 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 of a crisis. I mean, you, you can say that movies have taken over, TV series have taken over. Well, if you look at if you look at the movies in in Hollywood for the last ten years, more and more of the movies are based on novels. So the, the novel is, is is definitely important. But I think that, for example, uh, the TV series at last I don't know about the last couple of years, but for the first five, ten years of TV series on, on a cable network in the, in the United States. They were the cutting edge of storytelling at the time. That was what was happening. And even me as a writer, I, I, I stopped reading novels for a while and just watched TV series because that's what was happening. But now, I mean, for the next ten years, that may no longer be the case. Maybe that the novel is coming back. And uh, I think it was... Mil Milan Kundera, who said that the novel can only exist as long as the novel do what only the novel can do. Now that is sort of brilliantly put, but I think it's totally wrong. Um, I think that what we see is that a good story is a good story. Uh, and you can, uh, you can uh, use a good story to write a novel, you can uh, to to write a TV series or to write a, a movie. Have you seen? If you if you if you look at Angry Birds, you all know Angry Birds. It started as an app, uh, then it became a book, and now it's a movie. Uh, it's 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 going full circle, and it's uh, and I think is that is what we see what was happening is that you have an audience that is so used to consuming stories. Uh, we're, we're getting so good at it. I mean, if you look at an average reader or uh, watcher of movies and TV series, we probably consume 10 times more stories a year than our grandparents did. So we're getting so good at it, which means that storytellers 
like myself and movie directors, we have to keep ahead of the reader to surprise them, to, to give them something new. And how do you do that? I don't know. Yeah, mm. it's, 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 it's hard work. Uh, but I think that uh, uh, what you learn quite early on as a writer uh, is that your, uh, your reader is just as intelligent as you are. Um, and right, but you have to, uh, you can't fight it, so you have to sort of use your reader's intelligence and imagination to, to write the book, I think. You, you can't really paint the whole picture for them. You can just point them in a direction and they will go there and sort of explore that. Uh, explore, for example, moral dilemmas themselves. I can't hold up a, a moral dilemma and have Harry Hole make a choice that will be valid for the reader also. But what I can do, I think the only thing fiction really can do is ask interesting questions. And you don't need to answer the questions. I, I, I actually think it's sometimes silly when, uh, when writers think, because they are writers, that they can uh, give the, the question and the answer. Um, you can have your main character, of course, make a choice. Uh, but whether it's the right choice or not, that is up to the reader to, to decide, I think. There are recurring themes in, in your books as expressed through, through these crime stories that, you know, society and how it's changing, fundamental questions of right and wrong. But a recurring one, it seems to me, is what is a family? And how does a family work? And what's it for? Um, would that be fair? Is that true? Sorry? What is a family? Is that, that the, what is a family for? And what, um, what, is the, what is the individual's relationship with family? Um, I think that um, uh, that again hasn't been an, uh, an agenda. But uh, wh what I see when I look back at my previous five, six novels is that I've been writing about father-son relationships, which I'm sure have something to do with my relationship to my father. But I was, I was very close to my father. Um, so uh, why I write about these problematic father-son relationships, I'm, uh, I'm not sure really. Uh, but it, it may have been that I... I loved my father so so much, and uh, uh, I was so close to him that I can sort of put myself in the shoes of my friends who weren't close to their fathers and who uh, struggled with their fathers and they tried to live up to the father's expectations. Um, so maybe that's why I'm writing about it. Uh, but your father also had a complex history himself, and your relationship and working through with that. I'm not sure, if the, I'm sure that some people in the audience know uh, that, but your father's experience in the Second World War. Yeah, uh, I, was, uh, I was 15 when, uh, uh, when my father came to me and said that, you know, um, you, it's probably time to tell you what I did during World War II. And uh, I didn't even thought about what he did during World War II because, um, um, you know, he was, a teenager when the when the war started, and I knew that my mother and my mother's family had been in the resistance movement, and that she would run. She was just a little girl, but she would run errands for the resistance movement. Um, and so we said that when I was 19, uh, I volunteered to fight for the Germans against the Russians on the Eastern Front. So I spent most of the war in the trenches outside Leningrad. And so 
uh, that was total shock to me, you know, and uh, you know, trying to to picture my my father with a you know the German helmet, and uh, but it um, uh, I, th I think it also was a very important experience for me uh, as a, uh, to be a writer. Um, because it meant, you know, he, he made no excuses. He said, okay, so I had to spend three years in jail after the war because I had volunteered to fight with the Germans. Um, and, and his reason being that he feared Stalin more than he feared, uh, um, feared uh, Hitler. And uh, he had grown up in, um, in the United States and in an anti-communist family. Um, so that was natural for, for, for him. That was his way of, of fighting for his country, he thought. But he also said that I spent three years in, in jail, with what, which was a, you know, a reasonable punishment for being as wrong as I was. Um, Does that mean he was a social outcast then in Norwegian society? Somebody no, not really. Um, you know, he, stayed, um, he's, he was a... Um, he stayed friends with his friends who had been, you know, uh, before the war. And I think the, the thing was he didn't uh, benefit from, uh, from his choice. He actually put his life on the line. And in Norway, not many people did that. You know, 90% of the population just kept their heads down and tried to get on with their lives. We were occupied by the Germans in April 1940 and, uh, you know, were occupied until the end of the war. Um, so nothing much happened in Norway. Uh, there were a few sabotage uh, uh, events, uh, which all of them have been at least made two movies of. Um, but but you know, um, so I, I I thought that you know secretly uh, he they respected him for at, not for his choice, but for for taking the consequence of his uh, choice. Uh, so, in, in, in my, and he also told me that after World War II, the friends he could, uh, the people who could talk about his experiences during World War II were people who fled to, uh, to, to UK to, uh, to fight with the Allies. Because they had also, they were people who had made a different choice, but also had taken the consequences of their, um, uh, of their choices. So, um, but, but for me it was, the learning experience was sitting down with a man that I respected and admired and was a role model to me and had them tried to explain how we could make a choice like that. And what I learned from that was perhaps that, you know, when he talked about the way Europe looked to him in 1940 with all the old democracies more or less going bankrupt like England and France and it looked for him, like you know, destiny of Europe were in the hands of the two strong guys, Hitler and Stalin. And in 1940, the United States being at the other uh, side of the uh, of the planet actually meant being on the other side of the planet. Um, so you had to make a choice, and and you know, um, trying to understand that. People at a certain time will look differently at history than uh, they will in hindsight when you have the privilege of knowing what actually happened. Okay. <coughs> um, I, it seems to me that that must have 
helped you in coming to terms, not coming to terms with, but exploring moral ambiguity and rather than very simple understandings of what might be good and what might be evil or, or what, perhaps more precisely, what might drive somebody to do something that might be good or evil. Is that, so is that very important? Yeah. Yes, it's, it's, I think it gave me an understanding of um, how you can uh, become a criminal uh, without having made any uh, uh, moral decisions that are, you know, wrong to you, the way you see the world. Um, there is a famous Norwegian uh, criminologist who say that crime doesn't exist, meaning that uh, crime is defined by society. It's not uh, by the individuals and uh, that you know, society will uh, define crime as something that doesn't serve society. But morality isn't like a godsend thing that is written in stone. Mm. Morality is simply rules that society used to, uh, to have an uh, efficient working society where people can function together. And then, and I'm going to open it out to the audience in a minute, maybe arising out of that though, I wonder about the role of <coughs> the serial killer or serial killers, plural, in, in, in your books and the, the place of the serial killer both in fiction and what the serial killer represents. And also, I can't avoid thinking when thinking about your fiction in relation to that, the fact that one of the you know, most shocking acts of mass murder uh, of the last half century happened in Oslo only a few years ago, an incredibly in some sense it's both shocking and banal act, which in some ways contrasts with the, the, uh, the gothic and ornate and carefully planned, almost artistic projects, if I might call them as such, of the serial killers in your fiction. Hmm. And post Anders Breivik, did that change in any way, the way you, you think about that, about killing and society and morality? I, I don't think it changed the way I write about serial killers uh, because serial killers are really not about serial killers of course it's a it's a, it's the it's a metaphor for for what's evil what we know we have to fight uh, it could be a serial killer uh, it could be you know uh, Godzilla it's it's just it's the monster it's the shark in the, in in jaws it's it's not really inter interesting the, the killer is not interesting uh, and that's why the serial killer works that well. It's because we can, we can sort of rule the serial killer out because that is the monster. That is someone who is insane that we can't really relate to. You're not supposed to see the world through the eyes of the serial killer. That's the monster. Uh, and um, so, um, but uh, Utøya and uh, Breivik, that is, of course, something that happened in real life. That is not a metaphor. That is not like uh, the monster in the shark in Jaws that we don't get to see. We can see, I, I mean, he wrote 1,500 pages on why he did it. Mm. And he was caught and <coughs> he was on a trial. So you, you, for a time there, we saw him on TV every day. And uh, that is, uh, real crime is often, is not well suited for literature. Uh, real crime is, like you said, often banal, and it's, uh, it doesn't give meaning. What we want in the story is, of course, to have the writer 
um, give meaning to what happens to us, to tell a story that there is a link. First this happened, and so that happened. So it's not, it's not total chaos. It's just, it's not an, uh, you know, random, uh, uh, random events like life is, probably. Um, uh, and um, so it's, um, um, but then again, I mean, Breivik, it certainly have influenced me and any writer. It's hard to pinpoint exactly in what way, but like, like we are influenced by things that happen in our personal lives and what happens around, uh, around us. Just the idea, you know, the second, I, I remember I was, I was climbing in an indoor gym in Oslo, so I was dangling in a rope when, they, when the bomb first exploded outside the government building. So I didn't actually feel it, which is when I came down and the people around me said, because it was quite close to the government buildings, uh, did, did you feel that, uh, that you know, the ground was shaking? No, so I didn't see that. And then a climber um, who works as a doctor came running over to us and said, and took off his climbing gear. Uh, and I said, what's happening? And he showed me uh, on his mobile phone that there had been an explosion. Um, and he said that I'm, I'm a doctor, so I had to um, get to the hospital because there are probably people coming in. And uh, so we stopped the climbing session and I went home and I looked at uh, TV. And it was that moment when the news anchor, and they were all talking about the, the, the bomb explosion uh, outside the government building, sort of leaned forward like in the movie and said that there's unconfirmed reports of shooting at Utøya. And Utøya, we all knew that they would have youth camps for the Labour Party, and uh, the Labour Party was in power, so we instantly you linked the bomb explosion and what was happening at Utøya. And just that, that moment when you realize that what's happening in other places in the world and which is not supposed to happen here in you know, this peaceful, innocent city in Norway, it has finally happened. It's, it's happening right now. And uh, that is, of course, it's inevitable that that will influence the way you look at life, the way you look at society, and your writing. Mm. I'd love to ask you about movies, and I might still, if I, if I get the chance, but first of all, I just want to, uh, my eyesight is terrible, but if you put both hands up in the air and wave, I'll point at you, and I believe we have microphones there somewhere. See anybody out there? Anybody here? Well, while you're thinking about that, I will ask you about movies, okay? Okay. Uh, if you don't mind. Um, you have, I was checking the Internet Movie Database, and you have two of the most interesting directors in the world at the moment attached to two adaptations of your films, one which I think is in post-production, which is the film of The Snowman. Mm. which is the, um, the director of Let the Right One In yeah. and various other excellent films. Mm. And I believe uh, Denis Villeneuve, is he attached to another of Yes, he's to made a rival. Yeah. Um, uh, with those kinds of projects, you have obviously you had Headhunters, which I thought was a terrific film, actually, oh, by thanks. the way. Um, do you step back from those and go, okay, you know, some writers say, I've sold the book, they'll go off, they'll make it a different thing, or do you 
have any involvement in how it's going to progress? No, not really. And I, I know what they were said thanks when you said that Headhunters, the movie is great. Uh, because I had no involvement with that either. <laughs> uh, but it's very recognizably yours. They didn't change it into something no. that wasn't recognizably Joe Nesbitt. No, true. But, yeah. uh, you know, it's, uh, um, I'm, I really don't have much involvement with, with the movies. I, I'm a, I'm a novelist, I'm a, not a director, so... Uh, but I do actually... Uh, uh, you must have opinions, though, because your books are full of pop culture, including cinema. Yeah, but it's like when I watched, uh, when I watched Headhunters the, yeah. at the, at the, uh, when they first showed it in Oslo, um, the journalist approached me afterwards and said, you know, asked me, what do you think of the movie? Uh, but it was, uh, you know, it's, it's like asking a... Gynecologist, um, <laughs> if he if he thinks what he thought, if he, if he thinks that the last patient was sexy, you know it's uh, <laughs> you you're not really you're not able you don't watch it in that way. Yeah, I'm not sure about gynecologist, <laughs> but uh, you know for me it was uh, I didn't uh, it was. Really difficult to watch it in that way. But then again, I I did actually watch it the second time. I was in Australia, in in Perth, in a beautiful uh, outdoor cinema, and and I was drunk, and then I really liked it. Right. <laughs> yeah. Good. Yeah. Well, at least unlike the casting of Tom Cruise as Jack Reacher, uh, Michael Fassbender is, is is not a bad. He's a little bit too good looking, though, isn't he, to be Harry? He probably is, but uh, yeah. That's movies. Yeah. Now but he's see, a great actor, so uh, thanks. You have to put your hands up quickly or else I'll ask another question. So right down here at the front, two arms here. Yes, I think there's a microphone coming to you. Hello. Hi. Thanks for the books. Um, can I ask you, if you have time to read, just to relax, what kind of books do you like to read yourself? Uh, I... Uh, I don't really have uh, a, a category of books that I read. I, right now, I'm, uh, I'm reading... Uh, I just read a couple of Norwegian ri young writers who are really good. Uh, uh, Knausgaard, uh, I, I read, of course, but uh, also a guy... Uh, 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 well, I, I read Sobe Christensen, I don't know, The Half-Brother. I reread that book recently. He's he's not that uh, young, by the way. But Johan uh, Harstad, um, uh, uh, who's a young Norwegian uh, writer uh, who has been translated to, to the English now, is is great. So if you come across him, you should really read him. Actually, now I'm reading uh, a writer who is not that young, uh, Honoré de Balzac. Uh, <laughs> yeah, uh, and it's um, and it's amazing. It's, um, I mean, I. I did read him a little bit when I was, was young, but I went back and I, I picked up a book, and it's, um, it's amazing. So I, 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 don't really, I don't really read crime writers that, that much. From time to time I, uh, I do, but uh, I have it for a long time, I think. Jim Thompson was my favorite who wrote in the 50s and, uh, and 60s, and he still is. Yes, down the way down the back, two arms waving. I see down. Thank you. Hi, Joe. Uh, Nick, I'll be pestering you in a bit back there. Um, 
actually, the first thing a statement you mentioned that Harry in the new book sort of uh, recognizes his talents and what he's good at. And I kind of hope you recognize that in yourself and the books that you've given us. I hope everyone here agrees with that. Um, the other question I had really is, on top of Harry, which you get asked about a lot, you write about very strong sort of female characters. And I guess I'm wondering, without spoilers for people that might not have read all the books, who your favorite sort of female character is throughout the entire series. What, uh, what was the question? Could you repeat it? Your, your favorite female My character. My favorite female your, character. Very strong you know, uh, it was, uh, in many ways, it's um, a very short-lived character in the Red Breast, Ellen Yelton, who was, um, I, uh, but, but she died one-third into the book. <laughs> mm -hmm. uh, she had to go. Uh, <laughs> uh, but I, I also I liked uh, Beate Lund, who has this fusiform gyrus, that so she could recognize every face she's uh, ever seen. Katrine uh, Bratt, uh, I quite like. Uh, I had a question last night, you know, uh, uh, by women who complained about there not being, you know, she wanted uh, more uh, female heroes in the in the book. But to me, all those three women are are, are heroes. On the left, then near the back there, leaving a hand there. My Hi, uh, thank you. Um, I see what you mean about great storytelling. Uh, it doesn't matter what the medium is, whether it's literature or television. I've recently been watching uh, Occupied, which I know you were involved in, and I was just interested, when you were talking about your father, um, I don't want to give any spoilers for anyone who hasn't watched the series yet, but I know that certain characters in the series, and one in, one in particular, wrestle with whether to collaborate with the Russians or not. And I'm just wondering, did that specific character was that drawn from the experiences of your father, or was that just coincidence? Um, no, um, it wasn't um, like, first of all, I, I, I didn't write a script uh, for the TV series. I, I just had a general idea and uh, sort of the setup and, uh, and the plot. Uh, but, um, but you're right that the reason why I, I wrote the series is uh, because World War II is still such an important thing in Norway. And what I wanted to do was to, uh, to uh, have a setup where, you know, uh, people living in Norway today are occupied by Russia, but in such a way that we, they just uh, uh, want to take over the oil production because Norway have decided that, that they will stop producing oil. Uh, because of climate changes, and uh, Russia, with the silent support of EU and United States, occupy Norway and they take over the oil production because, of course, um, oil production is so important for the Western world. And uh, but they, uh, you know, uh, the, uh, the population get to keep their privileges. They are still one of the wealthiest nations in the world. Uh, they get to go to, you know, Dublin for their weekend shopping or uh, have a party, and they uh, they have the same uh, newspapers, they have the t same TV shows, and they keep their standard of living. So, the question is, given a situation like that, 
what would today's modern people be willing to sacrifice for nice words like freedom, independence, democracy, sovereignty? Uh, that is like the questions that uh, I wanted to ask in that series. And that has, of course, to do with my, my, my upbringing and uh, 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 you know, growing up in a family where my mother was in the resistance movement and my father fought with the Germans, you know, and we talked about being occupied, you know, the choices you make during an occupation all the time. We're waiting for another. We can only take one last question. I beg your pardon, down there. Yeah. Just, just before you do that, I'm going to jump in very quickly and just ask: Is that is that a very specific issue relating to Norway, or that seems like a very a very modern theme? That theme of what value do we place on freedom? And when we look at the politics in in lots of countries at the moment, I look at what happened in Turkey last week. Yeah. Uh, that people seem to be willing to relinquish, or, or perhaps not to value freedom as much as they did previously. Yeah. Yeah, I think it's it's an interesting question that you see, um, uh, you know, in 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 lots of storytelling right now. If you if you look, for example, at uh, TV series like Black Mirror uh, that deals with you know uh, modern society and you know um, to what extent we get corrupted by the material world and 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 you know we. Um, this, uh, it seems more and more distant, the times where we had to f fight for our privileges, where we, we take a certain, we take democracy and freedom for given in a, in a way. And uh, what we're seeing now is, of course, a development where um, I'm, I'm worried about those values and uh, whether it's, uh, uh, whether we should take those things for granted. I, uh, I, I'm, I'm not positive uh, about, uh, the way the world is developing uh, right now, um, as I guess you are neither. Sorry for jumping in ahead of you. Go ahead. Uh, thank you. Um, hi, Joe. Um, first of all, I just want to say thank you because um, I always read growing up, but I never really enjoyed it. That was just me. If it didn't have moving pictures, I, I, I didn't. I, I read for the sake of reading, but that changed at the age of 29 when I read The Red Breast, and now it's my favorite hobby. And I just want to say thank you. It means a lot to say oh, that in person. Uh, my, my question is. Um, uh, me and my, my wife's beside me here, um, we're having our first child in September and we found out today that it's going to be a boy. And um, I want you, please, to give me our child's middle name. Oh, wow. <laughs> Do you think you'll be okay with Harry? Yes, brilliant. That's what I wanted to hear. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> you, have to, you have to send me a, a, a picture, okay? <laughs> Thanks. <laughs> you know what? I don't think there's any way you can follow a question like that or a <laughs> statement like that, so we're going to wrap it up. Yeah. Joe is going to be doing signing some books. Thank you very much. And indeed, if you get home quickly, you'll see him on the Late Late Show a little bit earlier, too. But it's been a real pleasure and a privilege to talk to you this evening. Thank you, Joe. Thanks for having me. Thank you.